So why are people quitting? Because they've had time to reflect. And if the answers were good and positive, they would have gone back and said, you know what, I'm just thrilled to be here, thrilled to work for you, thrilled to be doing this work in this company. And they came back and they said, I don't want to work for you. I don't want to work for this company. I don't want to do this work anymore because you're not meeting my needs. You're not meeting any of the needs that I have beyond the paycheck. And life is too damn short. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Mark Crowley. And in thinking about how to do this introduction, I am reminded of, I think, the Disney movie or Pixar movie, Finding Nemo. I think the sharks do this thing where they say, fish are friends, fish are friends, don't eat them. And Mark grew up, his working early working career, most of his working career, his entire working career was in financial services. Think Wolf of Wall Street, managing a pack of hungry wolves. And Mark turns up and he just does it differently. He's asking people how he can help. He's leading with his heart. He is all about heart-centered leadership, loving his employees, if you like which is very strange. And, and he said to me, it wasn't until he was in his early 40s that an employee said to him, you know, you do this differently. Just said he'd never occurred to him that it was different. And so he said that was a great awakening. And he got to then over the next maybe seven years, I think he said, was that he got to fine tune what he was doing and why he did it and how it worked. So that when he left the world of work and wrote his book, Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership in the 21st Century. He wrote that 11 years ago, second edition coming out in August, which is why I've got him on to talk about that. And some of the, some of the updated stories, what's happened on this journey for him over the last 11 years. Absolutely fascinating conversation. And also, right at the beginning, he paid an advisor $10,000 to help him launch his book and build a platform. And she said, if you want this shit to fly, you're going to have to change the title. So for 10 years, he's been, or 11 years, he's been pushing this uphill on his own in a belief that leading from the heart is the secret to high-performing teams and financial success. His book is now taught in nine universities and has been the basis of a PhD program. And really, now you wouldn't, nobody would wish COVID on anybody. But I think that as a paradigm shift or a schism in the way in which management is done, people are at home, people are looking for ways in which to connect. COVID has a massive impact for him and had a huge impact on his social media following, people buying the book and his workload out coaching and speaking and consulting with organizations to redefine their employee proposition. So fantastic conversation with Mark. I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, then he's got, a, he's got an amazing podcast and uh, read the book, all good stuff. Links to that in the show notes as ever at monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast. I'm sure you'll enjoy our conversation.
Hi, I'm Mark C. Crowley, and I'm coming to you from La Jolla, California. I am the author of a book called Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century. And I'm thrilled to say that the second edition is coming out next month, August 23rd. And Dom, I think that's what we're going to be talking about today. It is. Thank you for joining us. The second edition, so if you think back, how, how do you feel the world has changed since you type that first manuscript the world has profoundly changed um but it's interesting because you would think that it would be sort of like this you know linear kind of progression and it hasn't been a linear progression at all in fact let's let's just take it this way my foundational belief is and there's science to to support this which is why i had the courage to call the book lead from the heart but in business we've traditionally believed that the heart was the worst thing you could do you don't want to get connected to your people it's like i'm paying you to do your job do your job well and we'll give you more pay and if you don't we're going to get rid of you that's kind of the transactional agreement that we've always had and we might have some nice benefits and stuff but really push comes to shove, problems, companies having issues, off you go. We lay you off. And so there's never been a real interest in cultivating a caring, nurturing environment for people. So when the book came out with lead from the heart on it, people thought I was either like had a religious transformation. I was a Hari Krishna. I had, you know, that I didn't understand business or that, you know, I like, I went into La La Land while I was writing this because I have a traditional background of, you know, being very successful in a dog eat dog kind of a world. So I have all this credibility and yet there's something wrong with this guy now because look at the title of his book. So the premise is, is that the heart is actually involved in influencing human behavior and the mind is involved. And so I had the, the willingness to say this is something we don't understand in traditional leadership, that we can't just make all of our appeals to the minds of people. We have to do things that affect people here. And so when it first came out, I had no platform, no one knew who I was. So I had that resistance. But then when people started to hear the title, they were like, is he insane? Like, I mean, seriously, like in the business reaction was, this is, this is really wrong. Like, bad instinctively i'm not even gonna look at your book it's stupid and yet what was very interesting was that education embraced it i started getting calls from universities saying we want to let you know that we're going to be using your book in our class and we're going to be teaching it i'm like what like why and not that i wasn't honored by it but it was like competing in, in influences right business thought it was stupid but education thought this was the future and that was what they really told me was that we see that this is what has to happen and we want our students to have this information before they go out in the world and start managing people. So it's been taught now in nine universities. And that is what it wasn't business's reaction that encouraged me to keep going. It was education's influence, but also realizing if they get it, there's an inevitability that the rest of the world is going to get it. So. The original book came out in 2011, so we're talking 11 years ago, and the new one is coming out, obviously, in August. But to your question, you'd say, well, 1 11th of the last 11 years is the progression. So we got a little better after year one, a little better after year two, three, four, five, and it progressed to a point where now people are much more receptive to this. That's not what happened at all. What happened was for the first seven or eight years, business still continued, not completely, obviously, or we wouldn't be talking, right? But there was enough resistance. I was invited to speak at Amazon. So there's a curiosity around my message. And at the last minute, I got told, oh, we're not going to have the meeting we thought. And so you don't get to come. And I found out two years later that the reason that they canceled me was because one of the senior managers said, well, tell me about the speaker. No, he's the author of Lead from the Heart. And like, hell no. We're not bringing in, we need, we need somebody who can drive performance, not understanding that I know how to drive performance and this actually drives infinitely better performance. So there's that resistance, right? And so I'm like, okay, and this has happened a lot of times. Amazon wasn't the only one to, to kind of shut it down. And then we had this pandemic 
and it forced people to work in their homes. It forced people to alter how they were thinking about management where now if I'm, if I'm calling you, Dom, I call you at eight o'clock in the morning, like we normally have a meeting and I go, hey, um, where are you on this project? And when are you going to get this to me? And I need this by tomorrow. And you've got dogs barking, a wife walking back and forth, two kids running through screaming, daddy, where's my breakfast? All of a sudden, it's like we can't continue to be indifferent to the humanity of people and to what's really going on in their lives. And so it forced managers to say, hey, Dom, this is a good time to talk to you where I wouldn't have cared less if it was a good time to talk to you before. Eight o'clock in the morning, that's when we do work, you're getting paid. Now I have to say, hey, Dom, is this a good time to talk to you? And you go, you know what, Mark, it's not. I have two kids and I've got to make sure that they get fed and they get off to school, so could we talk at nine? So now I'm making those accommodations and I'm willing to because I've got a dog and a wife and two kids walking through my, my house at the same time. And I'm aware of, hey, this dynamic has completely changed. So the wise people, not everybody made this pivot, but a lot of them did. And they became much more interested in how can I help you get through this? How can I help you endure this pandemic that we never knew was going to last for two years? But nevertheless, it influenced managers to be more thoughtful. And we know, interestingly enough, job satisfaction, employee engagement scores in many companies actually improved significantly during that time. So what's the variable? The variable was managers became much more caring, much more supportive. So in light of that, people are like, lead from the heart? I'm interested in that now. Like, I'm curious about that because I've already seen evidence that that can work. So eight years of little progress, two years of skyrocketing progress is kind of where it ended up. And managers being curious because the paradigm they'd been in before just got shattered. You know, they were, what, whatever, the, whatever the culture they had, whatever the connection they had with their employees, I guess it just, it's gone away or it feels different. And people are thinking, what do I do now? How do I, how do I change, I guess? And so they, they found you for inspiration. Well, you know, something else happened, right? So we all went away, started working in our homes, right? You're working in your home. I'm working in my home. I don't know how long that's been for you, but that's not been my entire career, right? So what happened is, is that we had more time. We had time to think, do I like my job? Do I like my boss? Do I like the company I'm working for? Is my ladder on the right wall? We started asking these, and by the way, does my manager care about me? Does my manager even know what I'm experiencing? You know, I'm a one-bedroom apartment with three people. Do they care that I really don't have a lot of space and that it's difficult for me to have private conversations? Whatever is going on in their lives, do they care? And, And in America especially, the answer was no. We had 43 million people quit their jobs in the Great Resignation last year. And everybody's been predicting, oh, it's going to come to an end here real soon. Well, guess what? It's on record pace this year. 4.3 million people in May, I think, was the number. So why are people quitting? Because they've had time to reflect. And if the answers were good and positive, they would have gone back and said, you know what? I'm just thrilled to be here, thrilled to work for you, thrilled to be doing this work in this company. And they came back and they said, I don't want to work for you. I don't want to work for this company. I don't want to do this work anymore because you're not meeting my needs. You're not meeting any of the needs that I have beyond the paycheck. And life is too damn short. And that's what COVID did for people. It altered our whole consciousness all around the world. So I used to believe, Dom, that honestly, you know, my first fantasy that was wrong was CEOs are going to read my book and they're going to understand the science has changed the the whole orientation of how we have to lead. And like you were saying earlier, that like that's that didn't happen. Then I started to realize it's going to happen from the bottom up. People are going to demand that they're being managed better. Well, that didn't happen either initially. But why it did happen is because people started quitting and they called these people's bluff. So now managers are losing people left and right. 
And then the new people looking into the new jobs are like, hey, what's the reputation of this company? Well, they just lost 40% of their staff because they treat people like crap. And they're like, well, I don't want to work here. So managers are being forced to change because people are leaving, not because they're noble. I hate to say it. It's much better if you wake up one day and say, you know what? I think if I treat people better, I'm going to probably get better reaction from them. But it's being forced upon them simply because from a business standpoint, they can't operate by having people leave and then having months to fill those jobs. So I think it, there's some great, some great research that Nick Marks at Friday Pulse shared with me, which was that it was, uh, this is pre-COVID, but it was uh, female employees in Japan and it was a list of all the tasks they do every day. And they were ranked in inverse order of giving them joy. And second from bottom was work and bottom was commute to work. And so, you know, you could absolutely see why people who have a, you know, you said, oh, I get, I do a job. It's just for a paycheck. I think that commute is the sort of tax, tax on your culture. If your culture isn't good enough, if you're not a good enough employer, if you don't care for your people, it's no wonder if you just think about your job as a job that you wouldn't want to spend another hour getting there because you've just done it from home for two years. And so I see, I see that show up with a lot of people where they're saying, well, why won't my people come back to work? It's like, well, have a look in the mirror. I, you know, maybe the reason is you and not them. Right. <laughs> and they're like, they're mortified because they were under the illusion that creating an employment opening was all they had to do. And that then there would be this queue of people round the streets to come in through their front door. And now it's like, hang on, my good people have left. Nobody wants to join. Right. Hey, this heart idea suddenly sounds interesting to me. <laughs> but what I find really interesting is when, whenever a company says to me, oh, we're struggling to attract and retain great people. Actually, I don't think great companies ever say that to me or ever have, or ever will, right? If, if the company says our number one problem is recruitment, it's like, that is not your number one problem. That might be the number one symptom that shows up for you, but that's not your number one problem. You've got a bigger problem somewhere else. The leadership isn't willing to look at themselves. So I'm not able to attract great people. There must be something wrong with great people, <laughs> right? And that's, that's like, a myth. That's not the point. They're all mad. But, you know, something else that happened, I don't know if you remember this, but it wasn't that long ago, like like a year before COVID hit, like the preceding year leading into COVID, employers started ghosting their job candidates. So, for example, I need a new manager for the X business. Okay. So I interview 10 people. I bring it down to final four. And then I choose one person out of that four. So what did companies do? They called the winner and they said, hey, Dom, congratulations. You got the job. You start next Monday. Here's your pay. Here are your benefits. And they would never call back the other three to tell them that they didn't get the job. And that kind of arrogance is, well, we have so many people wanting jobs, you know, and so, you know, we couldn't possibly get back to them. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm a big believer in karma and that's going to come back to you. And so we, we observe this. It's not just like what happens to me, but if I hear from you that, you know, Hey, I applied for a job and I'm, I'm really hoping I got it, but it's been three weeks and they haven't called me yet. And, but I'm really hoping you're never going to get the call at some point. You're going to go, where do you work? What kind of a shitty company is that, you know, or where did you want? And, and it word gets out and, you know, what goes around comes around. It really is true. I love it because they often, certainly here, they advertise that on the job ad. It says at the bottom of the job ad, it says, if you apply for this job and don't hear us from in four weeks, assume you haven't been successful. And it's like, really? You, you couldn't just get back to people and say no? I mean, how hard is that? Like you could, you could even automate that. Like that's not very complicated. It's just, it's just you don't well, want to. I, I've seen this, by the way. They, there are companies that automate it and they do a horrible job. So in other words, it's in Salesforce, some, some form of Salesforce that recruiters use. 
And so you immediately go into their system. So Mark doesn't get the job. So Mark gets an email and says, you didn't get the job is basically the way they communicate it. Not, hey, thank you so much for applying. We hope you'll continue to apply with you know XYZ Corporation. We respect the amount of time that you put into this. They could put some personal commentary. You did a really wonderful job in the interview. Our managers really loved you. We just found a better candidate. So you have that ability to personalize it and make people go, okay, that was worth my time. And maybe I'm going to apply to this company again one day. Because you have a 40,000 employee company and this not the job for them. Wouldn't you want to encourage them to say, I want to come back and try again? Instead, you get this, you didn't get the job. And you're like, well, screw that. I'm never going back to you. And I hate you on top of it. I'm not going to buy your products. Henry Stewart runs a company in the UK called Happy. It's written a great book called The Happy Manifesto. But if you apply, uh, assuming you they give you the they let you, you they keep you on file. So whenever they have a vacancy, they they go back to everyone who's applied to them before and say, "Hey, we've got another vacancy. Would you like to try again?" And so they can fill a vacancy in a couple of weeks for nothing because they've got people who they keep talking with who want to work for them. And I remember talking to the uh, VP of people at JetBlue. And he said the same thing. He said, look, lots of the airline staff that we hire, you know, they've applied to us four times and we've given them feedback and told them why they didn't get the job. And they go away and they fill that gap and they come back and try again because they want to work for us. When I first got out of college, I applied for a management training program and we were in a, we were in a big recession. And so I got a letter back from the bank saying, you know, basically what we've done is we've closed the program. We're not hiring people for this role right now because we're in a recession. We need to, you know, buckle down a little bit. And Dom, my my interpretation was I didn't get the job and there's never going to be a job. At the end of it, they put, P.S., could you please send us, complete this application because we'd like to keep it on file for when things change. And I thought, you know, it was young, stupid. And I just thought, I'm not even going to bother. This is a waste of my time. They're, this is never going to happen. This is going to be years from now, whatever. Nine months later, I got an email saying, we've reopened it and we didn't get your information and we'd really appreciate it. And I felt so bad about not having given it to them. But I ended up going to work for them and work for them for the first year, you know. <laughs> but how wonderful, right? They kept me on file. They waited for nine months and they came back and said, now, now is your time. And wh- what kind of a loyalty do you think I'm going to have for a company that thinks of people like that? It works like this. And then we don't understand that it, there's, you know, reciprocity here. If, we, if you care about me, I'm going to do something generous for you. I, it's, we're, we're hardwired to do that. So if you ghost me and you don't have the courage to call me and say, hey, Mark, you know, you've been through five interviews. You did a whole slide presentation. You know, we had you get down and do 25 push-ups, and you didn't get the job. If you just leave me hanging and I'm still, my wife's like, did you get the job? Did you get the job? I haven't heard anything. I hope so. Well, how long has it been? Oh, it's been four weeks, but they haven't called. So there's no answer. You know, but those hiring managers are long gone and not thinking about Mark. And that's just, I'm telling you, this is anti-heart leadership. So we were chatting before we came on air about the stories that you've, the new stories you put into this second edition. Because you were telling me the first edition, your wife suggested to you that um, all good ideas come from wives, I find. Uh, That, um, certainly in my case anyway, that you should put some stories in, some evidence other than what you already knew and you'd experienced yourself. And I guess that's one of the things you've updated in the second edition is new stories, new examples of leading with the heart. Have you got a favorite one? Or maybe there's even a most unusual circumstances, you know, because you were talking earlier about corporations. Maybe there's a, is there an example of a company that you just wouldn't, nobody would expect to care about this stuff? This is a story that it continues to evolve in its influence. But somebody challenged me 
to define what my impact was. So I had spent 25 years managing people and progressively senior roles and had very great success in doing that and kind of proved that my approach to leadership was successful at all levels, man, woman, educated, college or not, you know, what sales, operations, service, whatever it was, people responded to my kind of leadership. And somebody said to me, what do you think you were doing? And I thought about it and I realized I've been affecting hearts in people. Like they, people could feel something so deeply in terms of how I cared about them that they wanted to scale mountains for me. So I knew that that was sort of a repugnant idea in business. And so I started thinking, okay, well, how could I validate that? Like, is there any science that could prove this? So I started writing to, uh, I tracked down like cardio surgeons, heart surgeons where I live. And I wrote beautiful letters and said, here's my thesis. And I'd love to come interview you and didn't hear back from any of them. And so I'm getting very, very discouraged because they, you know, so one of them I called, oh, I'm sure doctor, whatever, you know, would love to talk to you and I'll put the message in front of them and nothing. And so I was like, yeah, maybe this isn't going to happen. So when I was as an executive in my organization that I had left when I started to write the book, I had a, a, a sizable insurance policy that the company had bought on my behalf that I needed to replace. And so my brother-in-law, turns out, he is an insurance broker and he sends a nurse to the house and they take your blood pressure and your blood and all that kind of stuff. And all with the intention of providing the data they need to replicate this insurance policy. So I get a phone call from my brother-in-law and we joke a lot. And he goes, I'm not kidding. This is not a joke. He goes, you need to go to the hospital. You need to go to the hospital quickly. You have a serious heart problem. They've diagnosed you with the, with the nurse when she came to your house. And I've, like you, you know, I've run marathons and I was, you know, I never felt anything. So honestly, I didn't buy into it, um, but I was very concerned. So rather than go to the hospital, I called where, you know, my doctor's office and my doctor had just retired. So I had a brand new doctor. And so they said, just come in. So I told him what happened. And he said, well, I have an EKG machine. Let's just run a new one right, right now. And I said, okay, perfect. So he runs it and he goes, you're actually healthier than you should be for your age. And they misread the data. So I'll write them a letter and I'll get you the insurance. So I'm like, okay, off we go. And he goes, wait a minute, I'm your new doctor. I need to talk to you and get to know you. So what do you do for a living? And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm in a doctor's office. I go, do you know any cardio surgeons? Like, and he goes, why? And I go, well, this, this is my thesis and I've been trying to write them. And, and like, I'm now making this about me. And he goes, well, who did you write to? So I told him Dr. A, B, and C. And he goes, well, Dr. A's in Europe, so you're not going to get a hold of him. And Dr. B, he's really shy. So he's just never going to be that person. And he goes, Dr. C, he's just, this is what he said. He goes, he's just a complete asshole. So you wouldn't want to meet. <laughs> so, so I go, okay. I said, well, do you know anyone else? And he goes, what's really interesting is there's a woman who's a, our top cardio surgeon, cardiologist, um, who's just written a book and she's written a book about emerging science around the intelligence of the heart. And I said, you're kidding me. It, like she's like, I can see they're building from my house. That's how close this is in the universe. Right. And so he said, I'll put in an introduction. So he just does a generic introduction. Mark Crowley would like to meet you. So I went and bought her book and realized, you know, that I've basically been validated. You know, I'm reading her book and I'm seeing that there's true science around this. And so I wrote her a letter. They invited me in. I walked into her office. Dom, she didn't even get up. She just looked at me and she said, Mr. Crowley, you have figured out something we're just figuring out in science ourselves. I didn't know what she was going to tell me, but I had like tears coming down my eyes because I knew my whole life experience was going to be validated. And what she said was, we, you know, when I went to medical school, we were taught that the heart is just a carburetor. It's like a body part. It's a pump. And she goes, but I started having patients come in and they had serious heart problems and I'm talking to them and I'm finding out they have 
hugely stressful work. They've got bad relationships with their spouse. They've got drinking problems. They've got other financial stresses. So she said, if their biography was affecting their biology, that can't be a pump. And so she goes, you're on to something. So she introduced me to an organization that has scientifically been researching the heart for the last 30 years. And their CEO mentored my understanding of the science so that I could write the first book. And I've since written many articles based on their incremental understanding of this. But that's the universe saying, Mark, you're on the right path and we're going to make sure you get what you need here. I find that astonishing. And uh when you're doing work, you, you work as a, I guess you speak about the work, you coach and consult. What types of organizations do you typically coach and consult? It's interesting because the area that I came from, financial services, was the least interested in my work. So like, like I finally got to go talk to a financial service and I'm like, you know, I'm one of you. Like I came from here. But they were, you know, financial services, they're, it's dark. Like they, they're, they're still up here and can't get here. But that has changed. So uh, one of my biggest clients right now is a big financial services company. And so I'm doing a lot of consulting for them, not in terms of, so I'm literally coaching their senior management team, but I'm also strategically creating their, their the direction of the company and how they want to manage people and their culture. So uh, that's a big win. Uh, that, that tells me the world is changing. And the, uh, is financial services, is that, is it a personality type thing? Is it because they're all, you know, there's a lot of accountants in there and, you know, they think it's got to be numbers driven or? The idea is it's money driven, you know. So the last job that I had was managing stockbrokers, investment representatives, if you will, right? So they're selling stocks and bonds and annuities and, you know, any financial service, insurance products, those kinds of things. And they don't make any money unless they make a sale. So the attitude is pay them a lot of money if they can drive in the performance. Don't pay them anything if they don't. Get rid of them if they can't. So it's this sort of dog-eat-dog world. And so the last thing you want is like a caring manager and, you know, somebody supportive. It's like, these are wolves. That's how we kind of treat them in, in the banking industry. It's like, hey, they're making tons of money. Leave them alone. You know, make it easier for them to make more money. But don't be thinking about managing them any differently. And so, you know, if you come up from that world and you become a manager, you're indifferent to people. I mean, you have a nice relationship with them, but you really don't care about them. It's like, I'll just get somebody else. A friend of mine that was managing for a large institution told me that one of his, um, his top brokers, so somebody who made the organization a lot of money, suddenly got diagnosed with terminal cancer. And so his boss said, you know, text me with any information you need me to know. And so he texts them and says, Joe Schmo is got terminal cancer. And what, do, you know, I just wanted you to know, what should I do? And he goes, start recruiting. He didn't say, send flowers, give me Joe's phone number, right? And this is the attitude. So when I went into the brokerage business, and took it over as the national sales manager. I had senior vice presidents working for me who grew up in the environment and they knew my reputation of how I've managed people for my, and they like patently told me, you know, this is never gonna work here. That's not, your style is never gonna work. So I said, well, why do you believe that? No, they just wanna be left alone. They just wanna be made money. They, you know, they don't want anything else. And so I got on planes and I identified the top 25 brokers and got on planes and went and met with them, went to their office and they I'd go in and they go, why are you here? And I said, well, I just came out to see what I can do to help you. And like tears are coming down their eyes. People making a half million dollars a year are crying. And I, and I, I knew why, but they were like, no one's ever done this before. No one's ever demonstrated that, that I mattered to this organization and that, you know, that you would come out personally and get on an airplane to see how you could help me. And so my first year of managing these Neanderthals was record revenue, record profit. And I, I've got it back there um, uh, on this side. Um, I, maybe I, where is it? 
there it is, but that little water drop, teardrop, I was named leader of the year for the organization. So people went, this guy knows what he's talking about. I never had any language around leading from the heart at this point. It was just the embodiment of what I learned to do. But why, you know, you've come up in that environment and you're swimming against the tide all the way up. What made you want to manage like this rather than just manage the way everybody else did it? It's the preface of my book. And so it's the, it, there's a story to this. I'll essentially say this, that my mother died when I was very young and my father ended up raising me and he was actually a very successful guy very, very successful senior executive for General Electric, one of their top people, but he was a very harmful human being. And so he basically went about destroying my equilibrium, my self-esteem, my, my, he just emotionally and psychologically abused me for my entire childhood. And then two days after high school, kicked me out of the house and no money, no emotional support, no let's get in the car and go find a clean, safe place for you to live. You know, here's here's a thousand bucks for your start and finish, you know, your first and last month's rent. It was nothing. It was like, off you go. No, come home on Sunday night for dinner. We still love you. That was it. I mean, literally in a matter of hours, I was out of the out of the house, out of the family, and uh, and never returned. So those five years that it took me to get through college, and by the way, my father told me that I was going to be, you know, a massive failure in the world. So I equated graduating from college binary, meaning if I didn't graduate, if I couldn't figure out how to support myself and get the disciplines to do well in school and get a degree, that he would have been right. And that was a too painful of a thing for me. And so I fought and did what I needed to do. I should have been kicked out of college the first two years, but I got my footing and I started to, you know, I had a job and I made money and I got into a rhythm and it was a massive struggle. And, you know, I always feared that if my car broke down, that I didn't have the money to pay for it, then I couldn't go to school. I was always in this sort of fear, lack of safety. And so when, came down to graduation, I should have been like, you know, look at me, look what I pulled off. But instead I looked at the people around me and I realized how infinitely better set up they were to succeed. Like I shouldn't have had to struggle that much, right? So the things that I were missing, I was missing love, I was missing attention. Hey, congratulations on doing well on your exam. You know, I hear you got an A in your class, way to go. You know, I'm struggling in this class. Could somebody help me? Somebody thoughtfully direct me and say, hey, don't take this class. Take this class. This one will be more important for you. I had none of that. And I also had no safety. I had no one encouraging me, no one approving me. And so I did this unconsciously and unconsciously for probably the first 20 years of my career of managing people. But it was such a deficiency in me that I thought, what if I give all of these things to the people who manage me? What if I make them feel safe? What if I make them know that I'm going to do everything to help them grow in their career and teach them everything that I know and coach them and encourage them and love them, basically? And so I did that. And everywhere I went, I was having massive success. So the company just kept promoting me. And then I'm hearing in my, my dad's voice saying, you're this you know, abject failure, never going to mount anything. And the company is continuing to promote me. And I'm like, this is like, I can't reconcile the two, right? Which one is right? So I was 42 years old and a woman who had been working for me for about 20 years, she said, you know, you manage people very differently than everyone else, don't you? And I said, well, what do you mean? She goes, look around, you know, just look, look at how other people are managed here. She goes, don't you realize how everyone wants to work for you and the results that you get? You don't realize that you're managing people differently. And so I said, well, tell me what you see. And it became obvious. I'm like, I, I, like it was, I got emotional. It was like, my God, like this was all a response to how I grew up. And once I understood it, once I realized that that was the case, then I started to refine it. 
what if I do a little more of this, a little less of this, that? And so I had, gratefully, another like seven, eight years of proving how it works and how to, you know, so I ended up being able to write the book because I had all this years of experience of doing it. I just didn't do it consciously until the latter half, you know, latter part of my career. So, you know, when I look at start to finish, you know, mom dying and ruthless father and a stepmother who was completely indifferent, getting kicked out of the house, all of that struggle. And then the experimentation with managing and proving how people responded to it. And then obviously finding all this massive science to validate what I had learned. I realized like I'm put on this earth to this is like I'm here to do this. This is this. I'm the Pied Piper for this entire message. It's not just knock off a book and, you know, try to get some people to buy it and get some speaking engagements. Like I'm trying to change the world with this based on all that experience. That's fabulous. I think it takes a special person to say with a straight face, they're trying to change the world. I can't say that I had the comfort of saying that, but you know, I'm, I'm knee deep in this. Like this first book came out 11 years ago and I was willing to pay the price for this and just you know, I started writing articles for Fast Company magazine so that people could read it and sort of drip. Hey, this makes sense. He's not the lunatic that we thought he was. And then, and then I started the podcast so that people could actually hear me and go, my God, like he's actually making sense. And then to hear the guests that I have on, you know, I'm only having people on who are world class and who also have some validation for the original thesis. So people are hearing this and they're like, well, wait a minute, she's at Harvard. That one's at Yale. This one's at Wharton. You know, this one's at Northwestern. This one's at, you know, College of London. Wait a minute here. This guy is right. And I think that's what's kind of, you know, so I was willing to do that. Not to say that it hasn't been painful. You want success to come immediately, right? But I'll tell you another interesting story. So my wife's sister was the assistant to a guy named Dr. Spencer Johnson. And you'll know him as soon as I tell you what he did. He's the genius behind The One Minute Manager, one of the most successful business books of all time. And Who Moved My Cheese, which may be the most successful leadership book ever written. And so my sister-in-law gratefully knew, you know, was trying to support me. And so she invited Spencer over to dinner. So this is right around the time that I had paid a woman $10,000 to help me build a platform. And she told me I was going to fail miserably. That's not what she said. She said very directly um, something different, but you can use your imagination. But she made it clear, you're going to fail if you continue to use this. So I'm having dinner with him and he was very gracious. And he asked me, tell me about your thesis. So I laid it out for him. And he said, you know what? He goes, you're going to pay a price for this. Like this is going to, this is going to take some skin off of you to get people to take you seriously. He goes, but inevitably you're going to win. And you want to know why? Because what you're speaking is truth. And that may have been the most influential thing anybody told me along this journey to hear Spencer Johnson say, you're speaking truth. Truth is victorious. Keep going. So, you know, I was willing to suffer through, you know, all the resistance that people thought that I was like, you know, a crazy loon who didn't understand business. Now I think we've gotten to a point where people realize this is not only essential, but like this guy's been saying it for a long, long, long time when we didn't listen and now we're grateful to him. I'm seeing that happen. So it's gratifying. And Mark, what do you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Somebody's asked me this question many times. Like, if you knew it was going to take this long for people to take you truly seriously, like, you know, mainstream seriously, because there's plenty, the book's been taught in nine universities, that's taking the work seriously, right? But in terms of just organizations reorienting themselves and how they're managing people, that's happening now, right? So the question was, if you knew it was going to take over 10 years for people to take it really seriously, would have you kept going? And I think the answer is no. Um, just because 
you know, I'm used to being very successful. I'm used to having immediate gratification. You have a strategy, you have a plan, you bring your team together, you execute it, you execute it great, you move on to the next one. I had that over and over and over. So to do something that's coming from here and have it be met with any resistance and cynicism, that's a painful place to be. And to know that I was going to have to be in that place, you know, often for the next 10 years, I probably wouldn't have. So guess what? Nobody told me it was going to take 10 years. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I'm glad they didn't. So, so the book's out in August, you say? August, but it's available now. It, it's literally, okay. it, they, it's, it's up now. In fact, they did it. My publisher did a really wonderful thing. So the original book is still out there. So if you go to buy the original book, which people have been doing, it says a, new, a newer edition is coming soon. So like, don't buy the old one, buy the new one. I just think that's wonderful. That's very much aligned to my message. You know, the last thing I would want is somebody to buy my old book and then find out a new one came out a month later and go, why didn't anybody tell me? So, um, but, but if you buy it now, it comes to you as soon as it's uh, published, August 23rd. Okay, fabulous. And other than the second edition of Lead from the Heart Leadership, what, um, what should people, people be reading? What recommendations do you have for people? You know, I'm, I'm reading at least a book a week from my podcast. So I, I've been exposed to a lot of really wonderful books. And I could probably give you a list of, you know, at least 10 books that I think are really great. But since you're putting me on the spot here, I would say there's a book by a gentleman named Leonard Mladno. It's an unusual name, M-L-O-D-I-N-O-W. And it's called Emotional. And it came out this year and it was I was so excited because it came out in time for me to leverage his work in my book. But it's principle validation that we are not rational beings. And he wrote a book with Stephen Hawking. It was a New York Times bestseller. So that should give you a sense of his qualities and caliber. Then a book that might surprise you that has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but everything we have to do with it is a book called The Autobiography of a Yogi by Swami Yogananda. And this is a book that Steve Jobs, when he died, everybody who came to his funeral, this was his parting gift, literally his parting gift, this book. And it's spiritual, but it's it's also mystical. And it explains how the world works in ways that we don't really think about that I think will be very expansive for your readers. And then two books on influence one, I think they're both called Influence, by the way. So maybe some subtitles. But the first one is written recently, also came out this year by a woman named Zoe Chance. She's a Yale Business School professor. And then there's another one by a gentleman who's a professor at Arizona State University in the United States. And this is a classic called Influence. And it, his name is Robert Caldini. And these are books that completely validate everything we've been talking about. And Caldini's book came out 20 years ago. It literally is a classic book. And the, I'll punctuate this by saying that Zoe's book gets into the science that validates my thesis. Caldini tells the story. He says, so do you eat brownies in the UK? Dumb. Do you know what a brownie is? A cookie? Oh, jo- yeah, brownie, like a sort of small cake. Yes, yeah, small cake. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So, so I live near you. I knock on your door, and I say, "Hey, Dom, my wife made brownies. We can't eat them all. I want to give you a huge plate of brownies for you and your family." So he says, "What's your first reaction when you get that?" Most people say, oh, oh, thank you so much, Mark. You know, I'm really, really grateful to you. That's really lovely of you. Goodbye. That's what they, that's, he goes, that's what you think you might say. He goes, but what you're really saying is literally, oh shit, I got to give him something. (laughs) Right. You want a glass of wine? You want to sit down for a beer? Right. And the way he describes it as it's almost like a hot potato. Like I can't wait to give you 
something to get that burden off of me because you've given something to me. I've got to give something back to you. And the way that he explains it, so this is his, his theory of reciprocity, is that when we go back to, you know, caveman days, if I had a piece of meat and you didn't, I would give you a piece of mind to keep you alive. But the expectation was that when you had a piece of meat, you would give it back to me. You wouldn't wait for me to be starving. You, you had that obligation to get me, here's your meat. Thanks for taking care of me. Here you go. And he goes, that is in our DNA. So why this is important is, is that what I discovered is that when you love your people, which is my motto, when you care about them, when you coach them, when you develop them, when you make them feel psychologically and emotionally safe, when you do all those things for people, by the way, you're still setting very high expectations for performance. So this isn't all, all heart. It's a balance of heart and mind. But when you do that for people, they're so grateful that they want to reciprocate and give back to you. Now, you can, you can abuse that information because it's sacred. But if you understand that by just being generous with people, that people are going to reward you, then you have an added incentive for doing what you should be doing anyway. That's fab. You know, I when I first did the first, I don't know, we're past 200 episodes of the podcast now. And when I did the first one, I think five people listened. I would do it anyway for five listeners a week to get book recommendations. Because like you, I have an insatiable appetite to learn more and a cute deep curiosity so that's fabulous there's three books out of the four there that i haven't read so you've got me sorted out for the next couple of weeks which is great mark it's an absolute pleasure having you on the show today thank you indeed for giving us your time from california thank you don uh it's late for you so uh, go have a good evening go have a beer and thanks for having me on Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.